All right, prospects for Super Bowl 56, Bucks versus Chiefs. Now we'll see what happens. <laughs> Let's, welcome to Disrupt TV. We are definitely not talking about that here. Um, but we are going to be having some awesome guests. We're going to introduce them in reverse order. And, of course, uh, more importantly, uh, get a chance to figure out where everyone's you know, coming in from and, of course, what we're talking about today. So, um, John, go ahead. Um, where are you dialing in from? What are we talking about? Hey, John Reed from the Sticks of Western Mass. I'm going to be uh, talking. I'm going to have a grouchy take on the metaverse, but ultimately a surprisingly bullish take. That, that should shock you. And, and then I'm also going to stir the pot on why B2B and B2C are different, which is going to upset a lot of, uh, of B2C evangelists out there. It's going to be fun. Come on. It's all the same. No, just kidding. All right. <laughs> Robin. Robin, we're dialing from what are we talking about? Hi, uh, Robin Murdoch. I'm from Accenture. I'm based in Seattle. Um, we're going to discuss some key takeaways from CES this year and also some research that Accenture has just released on social commerce. Ah, very, very cool. Hot topic there. And of course, Peter, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about? Hey, Ray, uh, I'm calling in from Montecito, California, up in the hills above Santa Barbara, uh, where it's 72 degrees right now for all my friends on the East Coast. Um, we're going to be talking about Unity and, and the work we're doing in particular in real-time 3D and how we're going to power the metaverse and the work that I'm doing in particular in sports and live entertainment. Ooh, we can't beat that. All right, cool. We're ready to go. We're ready to roll. I think we're all set. Al, please do the honors. All right. Three, two. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us in Disrupt TV show on Twitter. Send us your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business and uh, Excellence. Exits around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. But he, when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce with clients, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and, of course, posting insightful analyses of this show and other topics on ZDNet. But, of course, it's not about us. It's about the guests on our show, and we've got an awesome one to kick off. Who do we have to start today? Ray, absolutely true. What a privilege for us to have Peter Moore, uh, Unity Senior Vice President and General Manager of Sports and Live Entertainment. Peter has more than 30 years of experience in gaming, entertainment, and consumer products. Peter has had leadership positions at Reebok, Sega, Microsoft, EA, and most recently served as CEO of Liverpool Football Club, LFC. Peter has his own charitable entity, the Peter Moore Foundation, that helps disadvantaged families. Peter also currently serves as Vice President of Special Effects, a nonprofit that uses technology to enhance the quality of life of people with physical disabilities. And he and his wife, Debbie, are honorary president of Fans Supporting Food Banks, an organization that delivers meals to thousands of needy families in the Liverpool City region. You can follow Peter on Twitter at Peter Moore LFC. Welcome, Peter, to the Shrub TV. Thank you, Villa, and thank you for that welcome. That was great. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. So, Peter, we're excited to have you here. We'll, we'll pop up some Liverpool FC kind of uh, 
logos later, but you know, you know, Unity is one of the most important companies here when we're talking about not just the gaming world, but also the metaverse and beyond. There's a lot going on in some of these technologies. Can you just start by talking about what Unity does for those that don't follow gaming, that don't follow the metaverse, and really like what what you know what's happening there? From, from a, from Who doesn't follow gaming in the metaverse, Ray? That's my first question. I mean, well, <laughs> they wouldn't be watching the show. Unity is the world's leading creator uh, of real-time 3D content. We work with creators. We think that the world is a better place with more creators in it. And we, I know we're going to talk about the metaverse, but, but creating our lives in real-time 3D is going to be this next movement. I liken it to... I'm old enough to remember black and white television to color and how our lives are going to absolutely explode with rich experiences, whether it's e-commerce, whether it's watching sports or, or watching music concerts. And what Unity does is provides all of the tools for creators all around the world, from, from people in their bedrooms who just want to create a TikTok all the way up to professional. And of course, as you know, we recently acquired Weta Digital, which will allow us to continue this growth of powering what the metaverse will be in real time 3D. Peter, you've worked at some of the most recognizable brands in the world. I mean, I, I said it quickly, but I mean, Reebok, Microsoft, EA, you've launched some of the most, uh, you know, flagship gaming products in the world. And then, of course, when it comes to sports and brands, LFC is one of the top most recognized brands uh, in the world. What attracted you to Unity? I mean, you know, again, my, my sense is, you're, you know, you're a legend. You can work anywhere. What, what attracted you? You well, know, are you working? <laughs> yeah, it, 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 I'm looking at the beach right now asking myself the same question. It, it's, it all leads to John Riccatello. Um, John took me out of Xbox where I was having a tremendous time. He needed a president of EA Sports. And I had this, what he called a unicorn. I'd been at Reebok for nine years. I've had a global sports marketing. I had a complete change of career, moved into technology in 1998. Sega came a calling. I knew nothing about video games. But this idea of online gaming was yeah. proposed to me, and it really piqued my interest. And I thought this, this could be the future, and exploding gaming out of, if you will, boys in the bedrooms, all the way to the massive, massive industry it is today here. And so... When, when John came a calling again and uh, when my um, departure from Liverpool was announced, he showed me a little piece of technology. And I always remember, because I've been working on it ever since, of a rugby demo uh, with our partners at Canon. It was some data that we had received and, and applied our Unity technologies and brought it to life in ways that I had never seen. And, and you're exactly right. Why am I still working? Because of the dream that John put in front of me that ran in October of two years ago and said, you need to look at this. You need to understand what this can do to be able to revolutionize the way we experience sport, we consume sport. I knew of Unity, of course, because John was my boss at EA, and it was sad to see him go there, but I followed Unity as anybody in the industry has of this evolving of this you know, relatively small game engine that was powering 3D ex experiences to where it is today in automotive, in construction, in architecture, and companies yeah. like BMW and Volvo utilizing Unity. And this, yeah. to me, indicated where not only we were going in entertainment and sports, but where life was going and how we were going to use real-time 3D 
to solve problems, to bring things to life, to be more efficient. And, and that's why I'm here. Absolutely. You're powering the digital twin economy. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, and it's definitely a big space. I mean, let's talk about this dream John had uh, about what's going on with the metaverse. I mean, it's more than games. I mean, you're talking about these enterprise applications that are popping up. You're talking about what's happening in the sports world. I mean, this is a big dream. Uh, how do we define the metaverse? Or at least how do you guys define the metaverse? Let's start there. And let's talk about some of the applications that you're seeing, especially in some of the areas you're covering. Yeah, I mean, let me start with the story back to Vala's introduction. I, I joined Xbox 19 years ago. And, and the first thing as part of the onboarding experience then, and I'm talking 2003, was to read Snow Crash. And the belief was then that the metaverse, which of course was, was, was the entire narrative of that book, albeit a single entry point and a little dystopian when you got in there, but the metaverse- A little dystopian, oh, that was pretty dystopian. A little dystopian when you got in there. But the metaverse was, was a, a phraseology we were using back then because yeah. we saw that as we were building out the plans for Xbox 360, as we were building out equally, if not more importantly, Xbox Live, this massive environment where gamers would gather and like-minded individuals would play Halo, and then we'd play later on, you would, you would think about the games that would come in, EA sports games, which I was responsible for. So we saw then at, at, at Microsoft, this world of enrichment, the games were gonna be powering and the things we talk about and excited about in the metaverse, we've been doing in video games for decades, three dimensional, and particularly in the world of sports. And the stuff that attracts me to what Unity was doing, and now that I am doing on their behalf, was this idea of bringing a video game visualization of going in replay mode in Madden or scoring a goal and looking at it in, in every different angle that you could because you could, because the cameras are virtual. We talk about six degrees of freedom. Uh, it's certainly in our sports offering, the Unity Metacast. And you've seen uh, what we've been doing with UFC, who we're very proud to collaborate with to bring UFC into the metaverse and to think about ways in which uh, fans of UFC and, of course, fans of all sports ultimately can experience their sports in, in a very different way. I, I was watching Liverpool play Arsenal yesterday, but I'm, I'm there watching it two-dimensionally on a television and um, I couldn't interact. The future will be watching it, but the moment a goal is scored, I get my um, tablet or my smartphone and I interact with six degrees of freedom and look exactly how that goal was scored from every single angle. I'm in the penalty area. I'm watching a basketball game. I'm under the paint. I'm under the basket, in the paint, and under the basket. And, and I think that is the future. And again, I, I really liken it to the way that my world exploded as a sports fan when we went from black and white television to color. And I was seeing things and experiencing things in different ways. Nobody does that better than Unity. That's amazing. That's amazing. You referenced a rugby uh, in your previous um, answer. And I recall a few years ago, I think it was rugby where the referees had, I think it was Google Glass, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe it was Oculus with Facebook. I'm not sure. But they, they were on the field, you know, on the pitch, and you're watching the rugby players and streaming live in real yeah. time. And, you know, with edge computing and 5G and the capabilities today, do you, do you, see a, a future where like you, I guess you just answered where you really the immersive experience is from a viewpoint of the either the athletes or the referees on the pitch on the court um especially since you know to get courtside seats you know yeah. I mean, <laughs> forget <laughs> about it <laughs> we need you know we need to have your stellar career to be able to sit courtside uh, yeah so, so is this is this the future of metaverse with really immersive on the field experience 
Yes and no. Yes, we're going to be on the field. But no, not from the perspective of a referee or a player. That's disorienting. Okay. You don't have the control. Um, you know, it moves around too quickly. Okay. You as the fan want to drop this virtual camera on this virtual dolly, as we call it, anywhere you want. And, and imagine okay. a goal has just been scored and you go to your tablet and you look at it, but you're following the player into the penalty area. A slam dunk has just broken the glass. You go right <laughs> up in the air with the center as he is coming down on the glass. Uh, a, a hockey, awesome. you're on the ice, uh, but awesome. you need to be in control. You need to interact. I think at first, well, what you will see, this will be a second screen experience in which we'll still sit back and watch. Yeah. But then we'll go, okay, half time or full time. And then go, let's go look at this in ways that we would never have dreamed of okay. being able to experience it unless we were down there on the ice, on the court, on the pitch. And Peter, we'd overlay of statistics in real time oh, absolutely. And, 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 absolutely. And, and social community engagement. Yeah, I mean, the rugby demo that I showed at Web Summit, Leaders in Sport, World Congress of Sports in New York showed how we can meta tag any object, including the ball, if you will. Wow. And so you, you watch a player play, there's maybe a gap in the action, you click on that player in real time it will bring up what he's wearing. One click, you can buy his, his cleats. Two oh, clicks, wow. go look at his Instagram account. And we showed that demo of the meta tag. You can meta tag the ball so you get data. And in the world in which we're looking at uh, of sports betting and, and, and the powerhouses of DraftKings and FanDuel coming through to add that extra layer of interest for a lot of people who, who like to gamble on sports, data is king. And, 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 you know, having just lived in the UK for a few years and reacquainting myself how, how we Brits like to get to, to bet on sports, the opportunities to bet within a game are, are, are many full, 50, 60 opportunities to bet on just about anything. Absolutely. But data becomes king when you're doing that. You know, how hard was that shot? Um, you know, what was the speed of that sprint down the right wing? All of that through meta tagging and utilization of volumetric data can be pushed back for real time sports analysis for the coaching staff, the sports science staff, the medical staff want to see in real time 3D how an injury occurred. And as I say, betting, which if you choose to do that, requires uh, validated data that yeah. says this is what just happened. Absolutely. Wow. Is that a Jamie Gallagher signed jersey back there? I mean, Carragher, sorry. <laughs> that is a Jamie Carragher jersey back there. You can go to Carragher's pub in New York. Free free, uh, free plug for those guys. Yeah, there's a few. Stephen Gerrard, yes. Absolutely. I was very fortunate to be at Liverpool at the right time. That's you awesome. were there definitely at the right time. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you talked about, um, you know, this fall was really this very interesting thing about a platform to actually broadcast this stuff, Metacast platform, as you guys kind of call it. Um, what is that, right? How's it going to change that interaction that, you know, Vala's talking about and you're talking about with stats and interactions and yeah. all that stuff being pushed out there? The best example I can give you, the best explanation, Ray, is exactly what we're doing in the UFC right now, which we created soundstage environment in Los Angeles when I first arrived at Unity about a year ago, brought in George St. Pierre, GSP, legendary oh, wow. fighter, oh, wow. and Kevin Lee uh, from Vegas, the Motown phenom, and put them in surrounded by 106 cameras and captured every element of what they were doing there a full day in this soundstage in Los Angeles, then dropped a green screen of an octagon in there, working with our partners at UFC and allowing you as the fan to put your fingers on the glass and spin the action through six degrees of freedom, see every bead of sweat. And to be in first person, 
and GSP's coming right at you, get down in the ground game. And so so fans of any sport, and this applies to any sport, UFC is good for us right now. The technology can scale in an environment where it's got posts and pillars and the octagon gives us that environment. Of course, a lighting rig above, it's inside, so we're not having to worry about weather conditions. But over the coming years, we'll get into arenas and rinks, and then eventually we're going to be in stadiums. And this will revolutionize the way we as sports fans experience our sports rather than sitting back in this kind of linear and passive way mm. and getting excited when a goal is scored i'm going to watch that goal scored i'm going to get out my ipad mm. and i'm going to actually manipulate the action myself and this is why the google glass example is a good example but but it's not having you in control this has you in control of seeing what you want to see you sure. become the producer you become right. the executive producer. That's amazing. Peter, do you think that uh, you know, the Metacast platform will eventually be adopted by coaching coaches and coaching staff to, to learn how to uh, jujitsu or kung fu yeah. or, or, you know, I, I grew up with Larry Bird in Boston. If there was a way for me to understand his form and understand proper positioning of my feet, shoulder, wrist, yeah. follow through, I would have been watching and learning and mimicking and it feels like you can use these platforms to really understand how to properly compete at the highest level and use it as a teaching tool you're exactly right imagine being in the in the old garden behind larry but you're right next to him and remember that soft release he had and that flick of the wrist and it always went in and that little drop not the greatest athlete no, but no, but I, 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 that's me. So I would have loved that. And you can, you can be right there, put the camera right there on his wrist to see that gentle release and how it always went in. And, and, and different than what you see from Steph Curry today, a different release. Right, right. Larry always Both 90% free throw shooters, but different form. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, and, and having come from Liverpool, where, where, where sports science was critical to us, understanding, making big bets on very expensive players. And, you know, you go read a New York Times article on on how uh, data and analysis allowed us to find Mohamed Salah um, as a player that was needed there. It's coaching staff, scouting staff, great article. You just go search it in the New York Times about the uh, sports science staff and the analytical staff at Liverpool Football Club finding players. Now, look, you, you don't just use data. You go look at that player and you get a feel for him. Yeah. But, Absolutely. But data becomes very important. The sports science, the, the, the stakes are so high and in, in Premier League soccer, La, La Liga soccer, the Bundesliga, that the more data you can get to validate a decision on a player yeah. or a tactical formation. And look, you know, in places like Liverpool, you don't the team doesn't go in at halftime and, and the coach rah rah rahs and pep yeah. talks. It's big screens in the dressing room. It this That's is what's amazing. just happened. That's amazing. And you watch it at Liverpool, you'll see the the guys with the laptops there, they're collecting footage that will then be edited in real time so that the manager can then get to the team and the coaching staff can say, look at corner kicks. We're, we're not defending the near post well. Look at this. That's so amazing. it's very, very analytical. And the more data the players get yeah. to inform them in the second half to turn things around, the better off they are. That's amazing. For those of you watching, I recommend you watch Moneyball, a movie that's about the Oakland Athletics, but it ends with the Red Sox. Yeah. really trying to create the data science around winning and ultimately after 89 years it was that money ball thinking that brought 
a championship to the Boston Red Sox. So, and, and now it's real time. I mean, it's, it's yeah. not, you know, you know, one of the other things amazing. too, is like by putting it into Metacast, I mean, you're going to get uh, athletes uh, help them reduce their injuries too. Right. I yes. mean, and they right. get to play more in the, in the long run. Right. There's going to be other things that they're going to be able to do that wouldn't have been done before. Yeah. I mean, so. you, you're exactly right. Right. You look at the value of a, a Premier League squad and having players on the sidelines, you know, asset value of these players in, in hundreds of millions of pounds, euros, dollars. The fact that you, as I alluded to earlier, you can analyze the injury in ways very quickly through real time 3D. What happened to that knee? What was the pressure on that ankle? All of that. And then as they're rehabilitating, you can look at them three-dimensionally, look at their gait, look at their stride, put data against that. And, and the key is getting them back on the playing field as fast as you possibly can. When, hey, I, listen, when I listen okay. to you and I think about all these multidimensional views of live action, I think about the opportunity of intersection with NFTs. Imagine being able to capture that Steph Curry 4,000 three-pointer from a unique point of view, only provided through the metaverse and your platform, and being able to make that available for for auctions, for immediate, yeah. you know, that it's it's just an it, amazing. It, the next level of an NFT becomes an interactive NFT, not just a visual NFT, but an, a, an NFT that you can move back into. Unbelievable! Unbelievable. All right. Peter Moore, legendary. <laughs> and all we could have talked stuff. for the next hour. Amazing. No, Sorry, no, no. <laughs> We're with Unity, Senior Vice President, General Manager of Sports and Live Entertainment. I can't wait to talk about concerts and other stuff with you in the future as well. There's going to be a lot of future uh, happening here in the metaverse and a lot of way to monetize that. Uh, we're with, uh, but you can follow Peter on Twitter at Peter Moore LFC. And more importantly, uh, catch what Unity's up to. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks a lot, Peter. Thank, Thank you, Ray. Peter. Thank you, Bob. Cheers. Thank you, sir. Wow. The, the metaverse is closer than we realized, but who else can tell us more about this? <laughs> what a time to be alive. What a great segue, by the way, because our next guest is Robin Murdoch, global software and platform lead at Accenture. Robin leads Accenture software and platform industry, overseeing Accenture's work with world's leading internet and technology companies. Uh, Robin advises consumer electronics, internet media, and communication companies in the development and execution of strategies that capitalize on the changing digital landscape, which we've been talking about. Over the last decade with Accenture in the US, Robin has led programs building the world's leading cloud platform and developing and launching hit digital products and services in mobile, entertainment, and cloud computing. You can follow Robin on Twitter at Robin Seattle, R-O-B-I-N-S-E-A-T-T-L-E. Welcome, Robin, to the Shrug TV. Thanks so much. Thank hey, you, we're sir. excited to have you. You and I braved through CES, uh, and uh, <laughs> there's definitely a very different type of CES. Uh, let's set the backdrop of what the CES was like, and but more importantly, what were some of the highlights? What did you see, and what are things that you think are going to impact the enterprise? So, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, CES is, uh, as Ray and many many of you know, madness. Um, but this year, <laughs> lots of lo a lot of people weren't there, so it was about half the size of usual years, which actually made it. Um, made it a much more accessible CES where you could really get time with the people you wanted to speak to, really learn about the new tech. Um, you know, a few things that that, that spring out. Um, CES, the, the big thing is always the TVs, the TV tech, be it, you know, in past years, 3D, 4K, 8K, et cetera. But the thing that always happened around the TV space is that there was no content that you could actually enjoy uh, all of that new technology with. And I think what was really interesting this year was that OLED TVs are at price points that are more accessible. Oh, yeah. Um, there's high refresh mm -hmm. rates, et cetera. New sound solutions, things like Dolby Atmos. And you also had amazing content libraries from Netflix, 
you know, Apple, Disney, HBO. And, and then we're not in the cinemas, so we're wanting to enjoy stuff at home. So it's first year that I've been at CES where you can genuinely say that the technology that was available on the TVs was accessible to consumers and there was actually content you could enjoy, which certainly wasn't the case on many of the other technology waves. So TV is interesting again in a way that I think, you know, and you can add, you know, interesting hearing from Peter that gaming I mean, gaming is making use of exactly the same type of technology. So TV being back would be one. Uh, another trend, the fitness space. Uh, you know, every year at CES in recent years, you've been seeing sort of new, new things like Peloton, Hydro and others. And there's this interesting tension right now that's going on between those sort of really quite expensive products like Hydro, Peloton, and a, you know, and a significant subscription competing with these mass market things like Apple Fitness with the watch um, and new entrants like Aura, Whoop. Um, there's also, we spent time in the Accenture booth with Zwift, which is a, a metaverse cycling platform. And I, I thought that was a great example of kind of a mass market fitness solution. And lots of the world cyclists and triathletes are, are using that platform. So fitness will be second. Third, um, something that we're enjoying today, the ability to be productive and look good on video uh, working from home. Um, suddenly webcams are interesting again. I mean, who'd have thought? I mean, it was a, webcams were a, something no one was really caring about. Now there are startups in the webcam space. So, so, you know, and then, you know, to look good on video, lots of the technologies that we're, we're all using today, um, you know, using StreamYard and uh, products from Elgato, cameras, microphones, those things are no longer just for creators. Uh, yeah. Those are things that people are using in their everyday lives to, to look better on video. So I thought, I thought that was another interesting trend. And final one, I'd say we can obviously get onto the metaverse, but in terms of things that were very much real at CES, um, connectivity. All mm. of this stuff we talk about is kind of a bit pointless if you can't get a fast connection to your home. Oh, yeah. Um, and then inside your home with things like Wi-Fi 6, uh, having having the connectivity you need. And um, you know, it's been interesting in the past year, 5G is an alternative to home broadband, SpaceX doing things with Starlink, and then Wi-Fi 6 in the home, starting to see that in home routers and, and devices themselves in the home. So all of that collectively, some of the highlights for me at CES. Did you, did you sense any uh, slowdown in terms of innovation roadmaps and discussions due to chip shortages and the supply chain disruption that you've, you know, we've had to deal yeah. with? Or, are, or is this something that's going to be in our rear view mirror shortly and, and companies have planned accordingly and continue to accelerate and deliver innovation like you saw at CES? Yeah, I mean, the chip shortage kind of underpins so many things that were around uh, the CES dynamics this year. Um, our view, Accenture's view, is that um, we are we are gonna be moving past the chip shortage um, because of chips being really sort of early in the supply chain, um, the ripple effect of chips and the lead times of, of getting the quantities and types of chips you need. It takes a while to move through, but everyone's investing and looking to solve that problem. So our expectation is, you know, we'll, we'll, it won't be the same next year at CES. And, and you saw the theme of metaverse. Uh, did you feel that it was across all of CES? In other words, it's not just in a particular pocket. Uh, you know, everyone has this new immersive digital first world top of mind. Yeah. 
Oh, I was just, I was amused when Peter was talking about, you know, that it was two decades ago that he first sort of experienced Metaverse. I, I can I can actually beat him on that. And my first job working for Ford, I uh, I, I, I used virtual reality um, to in vehicle development uh, in the days of silicon graphics. And, and uh, we also used the cyber glove, which was this. <laughs> Anyway, so 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 I suppose, but I, I say that as a means to say, you know, we've been building to this point for thirty years, um, and we're we're kind of, you know, the original, you know, pre-iPhone. There were lots of things that were trying to be iPhones for many many years, and it feels like right now the right analogy on the metaverse is we're in just in that pre-iPhone moment where things are about to explode, yeah. and everyone's positioning, and there's lots of great examples of specific things. I mentioned Zwift, you know, that's a metaverse for cycling, but it's a distinct community. It's not actually augmented reality. We, we've got we've got the positioning. And every year, and Ray can talk to this as well as I can, every year at CES, there is the bright, shiny object that everyone wants to talk about. And metaverse was definitely that bright, shiny object. It doesn't necessarily mean that on the show floor, you're seeing lots of metaverse, yeah, yeah, but, it's, yeah. um, but it's a topic that everyone, everyone was come, uh, talking about. Um, to, to your point about business, no doubt, in the same way that the iPhone wasn't just a consumer product, it led to so much B2B innovation, um, the same thing's going to happen yeah. uh, with the metaverse. And yeah. um, lots of, there, there are already examples of, of VR and AR being used in business context, but obviously the next couple of years we'll see that. Do you really think the well. changing color BMW is trying to touch <laughs> this notion of a dynamic future world where... You can have more control of even the color of your car. I don't know. To me, it filled my Twitter stream. Uh, if yeah. I had to say the thing that had the most noise, uh, not noise in a bad way, most buzz, yeah. was the changing BMW color. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the John Deere tractor didn't pick up John on Deere tractor. No, no, no. No, really. That's, that was definitely in my top 50 three. million images in AI. The Emilia robot with the human... <laughs> you know, gesture, you know, there was probably three or four things that, yeah, but the tractor was one of them. Yeah, that's one. No, but it's a good point, right? This this is an enterprise show. So so the consumer bleed into the enterprise. I'm, you know, new massage chairs aren't really going to count. So. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's interesting. When you look at Unity and exactly what Peter was saying, all this technology can be used in multiple different ways. Yeah. And Unity is a great example of sure. platforms that can be used in, in very different ways. And 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 that's the reality of it. There is going to be there's going to be both the B two B and B two C side. Yeah, no, we just spend a lot of time talking about metaverse use cases, and, and one of those things that uh, keeps popping up is like how they get used in commerce and CX, right? And and this whole notion of where social commerce is going, right? And metaverse and e commerce, it's just like there's a convergence happening. You've been talking about this too as well. Like, what what are some of the highlights from uh, your research and and the work that you've been doing? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. So when, when we say social commerce, you're right. It's the collision of advertising, commerce, media, all coming together. And the pandemics really led to an explosion of ways that social platforms are being used to drive commerce. It's actually quite difficult to keep up. I mean, if you look at all the different ways that Instagram, TikTok, YouTube's being used, you know, incredible. But then you look to China and it's even more, even more mind-blowing. Um, socials played a part in our e-commerce journey for for years and years, just user reviews of products and services. But now we're really looking at social commerce where the transaction actually happens and gets consummated on the, the social platform itself. So um, we in Accenture just did a global survey of 10,000 um, people worldwide. 
Um, and our, our, our take right now is that social commerce is about a half trillion dollar market oh, yeah. right now. But the expectation is that it's going to grow to over a trillion dollars by 2025. And that's actually three times as fast as traditional commerce. So you're seeing sort of that that shift very much kick in. And no doubt, I mean, if you're a stats are right now, if you're a social media user, two thirds of us have actually bought something already through a social media platform. Um, so it's uh, it's it's clearly a hyper growth opportunity. You know, and, and the stuff Peter was talking about too is pretty crazy, right? I mean, we've, we've had a billion in esports revenue last year. Like we crossed the billion dollar threshold, right? Yeah. That combination of what's going on along, not even counting the advertising piece. Yeah. I mean, that that's yeah. a pretty huge piece to talk about that you were just missing in. So The numbers on the Accenture report are, yeah, $1.2 trillion by 2025. Um, there's about 2 billion social buyers globally. Yeah. You know, we're about eight billion. So one in four are buying on social, which is which is which is incredible. Uh, millennials will account for one third of social commerce by 2025 when we get that tripling effect to one point two trillion. One interesting part of the report for me was that consumers in developing countries are even more likely to use social commerce. Can you talk a little bit about that and any other other findings that speak to kind of the geographical difference? And in certain regions, the adoption is far greater than the U.S. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, China is 10 times yeah. the size of the U.S. Uh, social commerce market. Um, and China's really, you know, been leading the way. But but the pandemics kind of allow the advances we've seen in China to start manifesting in, in other places. And there's so many different examples that are kind of crazy. Like in Latin America during the pandemic, um, a lot of commerce moved to WhatsApp. And you're like, well, how does that work? I mean, WhatsApp isn't a, isn't your traditional uh, social commerce platform, and that's basically people are interacting directly with with um, shops um, on on through through WhatsApp. Um, in terms of kind of like the key key things that I, I take away from the research right now is um, certainly being led by China. If you look at the top categories, clothing, electronics, and then home de decor, those are the ones that seem to be working working the best and you know allowing allowing that targeting. Um, you mentioned actually that Gen Z and millennials, they're making up uh, yeah. the majority of, um, of, of the users of these platforms right now. I think the one other thing, the one other thing I'd say is that trust is trust underpins the entire social commerce yeah, experience. Sure, and sure. that means that means if you've got a creator you really like, you trust them. You want to make sure that the thing you're getting is is endorsed by that creator. So that's one component of trust. The other component of trust is, and you mentioned esports, which is a bit different. But if you're buying something physical, is it actually going to get you? One of the things about Amazon, we just know when we click buy, yeah, it's going to come to you. And yeah. in social commerce, there isn't that level of trust because you're you're not transacting completely with one person. There's the creator. There's the brand you might be interacting with the platform who's shipping it so so that plays yeah. a big part in it robin in the report though it said if i'm not mistaken six out of the ten social buyers are likely to do business with small and medium businesses yeah uh, so do you think that social buyers trust small and medium businesses more uh, although as you said amazon is almost guaranteed you're going to get the product but is it is that level of intimacy and responsiveness and authenticity that a small business can provide is an opportunity for small business to invest in commerce 
and social commerce because six out of the 10 of the 2 billion buyers want to do business with small and medium businesses. Yeah, I mean, look, when we talk about platforms generally, small and medium businesses power, you know, they're the leading advertisers on Facebook, the leading advertisers on Google. Half of the merchandise value that goes through Amazon is through small business merchants on their platform. So this idea that it's kind of a platform or it's a, it's a small and medium business, they're kind of completely linked together. But it's even more important in social commerce because, because the trust of, of an individual brand, a small, a small business brand, or indeed a creator who's then got sort of a brand around them uh, becomes hugely important. And so, and then the other thing about social commerce is it democratizes uh, you know, being able to access users, access yeah. customers. Right. And for SMBs, that's, that's, you know, when the finite amount of money to spend on customer yeah. acquisition, you can really target in. And, and we've all experienced that. You look at the things that show up on your feed. Sure. Sure. are and, completely tailored to you. And that first party data is so, so important moving forward. And just another follow up question. Uh, my company invests in a, in a visual commerce startup because we've noticed the business positive impact of visual commerce, augmented reality, interactive 3D, but certain, not just luxury items, it could be furniture, but you know, it could be luxury watch, handbag, uh, but visual commerce seems to have had a great uh, moment in the certainly in the last 22 months of the pandemic, people at home maybe not be able to go to the physical store, so they want to see and feel and look at the shadows and so on and so forth. Your thoughts in combining social commerce, visual commerce, and and, and, and is that why we're going to triple, you know, uh, from 492 to 1.2 trillion? You know, no doubt. There's so there's so many underlying technologies that that we're seeing bloom right now. There's an awful lot of VC investment in all of the. All of the, the different capabilities yeah. one needs to stitch together are a really compelling social commerce experience. Uh, we had, when we were on at CES on stage, we had a startup called DressX that creates virtual dresses that you can you can look at in a 3D wow. 3D environment and see how you'd That's see awesome. how those awesome. how you'd look in them. Um, you know, there is so much creativity. Uh, back to my earlier point. I mean, everywhere you look, there's something new happening. Um, and technology definitely underpins it, creating that great kind of shopping, compelling experience uh, that you would have in the physical world. How do you manifest that in the digital world? Hey, real quick, I want to end on a conversation around trust. And and that was a very mm. interesting thing. Part of the report is really how uh, younger generations are happy to just jump in and, you know, and, and trust what's going on. Uh, and older generations are like, hey, I'm worried about security. Right. And, and talk a little bit more about that. You know, trust is a, it's such a hot topic because on the one hand, you have people, you have a finite set of the population that is really caring about it. And you have a, a mass part of the population that really is Who about cares? the great experiences. And they're only going to come up against that problem when stuff doesn't arrive or, or, mm-hmm. or it falls down. For most people, if the service is compelling and a good experience, they're not thinking about that. And I think that's, and as you talk sort of from a business context, that's the takeaway. It's yeah. like you solve for trust. The trust is there, but you're, it's very easy to lose. And yeah. so baking that into the entire experience from you know how your brand is reflected, is the brand trustworthy, all the way through to fulfilling on your promises is kind of critical in social commerce. 
Yeah, no, my, our research shows that majority of uh, consumers and business buyers, they, they put a, a stronger emphasis on the experience, the customer experience as the product or the service that you deliver. So you could have a superior product compared to a competitor and lose because the experience isn't quite uh, to, 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 the, to, the, to the standards and the expectations of the buyer. My last question to you, where do you see missteps in terms of how brands lose trust? Is, how do you advise, how does Accenture yeah. advise companies to make sure that trust is a core value and guiding principle, not just how they design products, but also how they deliver experiences to, to stakeholders? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's understanding the end to end of the full experience. I think one of the ones that's actually really interesting at the moment and kind of an emerging area that brands really need to understand is who are the right creators for you to align yourself with? Mm. What, what is that? What is that magic when you combine, you know, one creator with another? At CES, we had uh, one of Amazon's chief marketing officers talk about how they worked with a TikTok creator called Emily Zuge, <laughs> yeah. who, who, you know, reworked their logo. And they then did some excellent creative off the back of it. Wow. And that was really interesting because awesome. you know, Amazon wants to have a really fun brand. Yeah. Emily Zuge, very fun. <laughs> so I think it's about making that, making that connection uh, and, you know, seizing on those opportunities. That's awesome. Robert, next time you come, you got to jam on the drum. Yeah, I know. We're looking show. at that. We're I like... keep staring at it going, oh, I wish I could have Robert play for us. <laughs> we are here with Robin Murdoch, global software and platform lead at Accenture. You can follow him at Robin in, Robin Seattle. I always want to say Robin in Seattle, but it's Robin Seattle. So uh, check it out. And thanks a lot. And thanks for sharing your trends. And please check out the social commerce report as well. So thanks for being Thank here. You, Happy Friday. Wow. Well, I know well, one we're going to slow our, down now, I think, right? Our, our next um, <laughs> guest was probably eating it up when we were talking about sports and metaverse and immersive experiences, because him and I know how hard it is to get courtside seats at the Celtics or even <laughs> midfield seats at the Pats. But our next guest is John Reed, co-founder of Diginomica. John has been building enterprise communities for decades. He doesn't like it when I read his bio. John is a blogger, <laughs> analyst. He is an advisor to vendors and startups uh, who want to stay informed with enterprise buyers. John is an advocate for media over marketing. His signature weekly column, Enterprise Hits and Misses, is a straight-through latent enterprise review for readers who enjoy puncturing hype balloons. I love that. John's core yeah. areas of research, customer experience, which we've been talking about, pursuit of AI analytics, ROI, future of work, skills development, and realities of transformation efforts, realities showcased by actual use cases. You can follow John on Twitter at John ERP, J-O-N-E-R-P. Welcome back, John, one of our favorite guests to the Shroud TV. All right. I'm coming in hot today, guys. This is going to be good. <laughs> you're hot, this man. Gonna you're going to be good. Sandwich, yeah. Man. You're yeah. And I'm, We're going to do it this way this time. The metaverse. We converted you to a metaverse advocate after, after Peter's session. <laughs> uh, well, the metaverse really makes me grouchy, though. Look, I'm not going to deny the hardcore <laughs> use cases around sports and gaming and stuff. Um, I, I think I've got some interesting curveballs and some good interaction for you. But I do want to start with this hype balloon, which is, that that thing around Red Sox championships and Moneyball, not quite right. Um, Moneyball was a key component, but they also combined that with some very high-priced free agents that the Oakland A's who developed Moneyball could never afford. Sure. People like Manny Ramirez and David Ortiz, sure. you're not winning the championship without those guys and Kurt Schilling. And the reason that's important is because in in our world, 
we want to sometimes reduce everything to analytical superiority and data superiority. We can't forget about talent. It does come back to talent. And it's the fusion of the two that makes things very interesting, both in sports and outside of sports in the enterprise. And so I always like to think about that as like automation here, but let's not forget about talent. Talent still makes things happen. Do you think Brady left the Patriots because of that? Because too much focus on analytics versus supporting him with talent where he could actually perform like he has been in the last two seasons? Good question. I mean, you know, look, I mean, it's like system versus talent, right? You have to have sometimes your system has to bend to the talent and you have to figure that out. And so anyway, that's what we're all trying to in our own ways in our own businesses, figure out like that, that balance. But anyway, I hope everyone realizes that one of the reasons why we're talking about metaverse this week is because Microsoft went on a little bit of a spending spree. (laughs) Yeah. A little bit. I don't know. What did Uh, I buy? I didn't see anything. Now. uh, Yeah. Um, In fact, Ray and your colleague Liz, you wrote a really nice, uh, what you call the hot take, which I thought was a really interesting blog post on this topic. And we only capitalize hot takes, but keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and we kind of ratcheted this up a little bit. And I want to explain a little bit about why I'm a little bit of a grouch about the metaverse in the short term. And I'm also going to tell you, I'm going to show you why I'm a grouch, but then I'm also going to tell you why I'm a little bit bullish in the long term. And then um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the differences between B2B and B2C. And you guys can help me with my little countdown because I think you guys are going to have some good input on this. So, uh, so anyway, let's talk about this. Uh, this this post that you made, Ray, because I think I recommend readers check it out on your site. And I'm not so sure this is a super big bet on the metaverse, first of all, because I think this is sort of chump change for Microsoft, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I, and, you know, not everyone can spend $68 billion and say it's chump change. Um, but look, I mean, when you're buying World of Warcraft and other things like that, you're going to make your money back. Uh, but I think what is interesting about this conversation, though, is like to what extent is the metaverse concepts going to translate away from the hardcore adoption of gaming into other arenas and at what speed and is it going to be revolutionary or is it going to be niche uh like and so i thought this was really interesting uh ray you you have this fascinating quote in here uh, which really surprised me because you just wrote a book uh that doesn't really jive with this quote very much so i don't know about this exactly everyone everybody wants to rule the world is about digital duopolies and in this quote you said in a fully established metaverse through which a robust metaverse economy can thrive gaming and entertainment can't be the only experiences available instead in this next decentralized and data-driven co-created economy work and life will also be a collaborative connected effort and i found that a fascinating quote because is it going to be decentralized? Because to me, what, what you then said was that it puts Microsoft and rivals with like Meta, Apple, Tencent, Epic. Is that decentralized? I, that's the thing that I kind of wonder about. Like if the metaverse turns into a big thing, does that mean it's going to be this decentralized phenomenon? I'm not so sure. I, I'm, I think it might be the stomping grounds for big tech going forward. Not necessarily. I mean, do you think? There's a war between Jack and Mark Andreessen. And and when you look at that underlying war, it's really, um, will we be able to take our data, our individual accounts and our stuff freely across? Sorry, this is Jack Dorsey, Mark Andreessen of Harvard. Yes, yes. And, and the question is like, how do we take our data, our accounts, our experiences across different worlds? And the Web 3.0 movement that's under, underlying a lot of the metaverse movement here is, is really saying, look, we're gonna rebuild technology so it's gonna be better. We went from the age of you know the internet to the age of digital giants. And when we get to the age of metaverse where we actually can do that. Now, the odds don't look good, right? Microsoft spends, you know, spins off 40 billion in free cash flow every year. 
right? And so they can keep picking up one of these every two years and, and not even worry about their cash on hand. And, and, that, and that's really the challenge is how does this, how does this change? And that's actually going to happen from some of the privacy legislation that you're starting to see and also some of the antitrust legislation that's starting to percolate uh, in uh, legislatures around the world. And, and that's where we actually see, for example, um, maybe you can have data portability. So you want to switch metaverses, mm. you should be able to take your account, all your experiences, and when people connect in, it'll light up like they just joined, right? So you can swap between all these areas, right? So if someone really smart will actually come up, come up with that type of legislation. I didn't see it. We see some levels of data portability, but we're going to have to get some smarter folks in legislation to go do that. Uh, but yeah, you're definitely in a right recent on. interview, even Zuckerberg admitted he doesn't think there's going to be one metaverse or multiple metaverses. and identity movement and mobility will be part of it but and China that seems like so far away itself. like to get to scale I, I, the internet needed you know tcp ip the web needed http uh, you know what are the standards that allow you to interoperate across right. metaverses so so that's i guess that's my first sort of call out point is that even if the metaverse becomes a big thing and let's say it does become a revolutionary force that doesn't mean that it's going to become a wonderful decentralized empowering phenomenon. It could be dominated by the same players that Ray has documented so so well in his in his must read book. And so that's kind of one of my points. And then the next point that I have is you go on to say all of a sudden the lines of business across Microsoft and you said Office Azure and gaming start to reemerge as key paths to this fully immersive metaverse. And you threw me there in a really fun way because I think the leap from Azure to, to gaming to Azure, I get that leap because that's all about cloud stuff. But to Office, okay, that's the leap right there. And and I just want to demonstrate to you, I'm going to show you what I mean. Would you wear this to your next Teams meeting? Google sent this to me. <laughs> you look like one of the characters in Yellow Jackets. Yeah, <laughs> Can, can you hear me? Can, can, can you hear me? Amazing. Would you wear this to your... Keep that on for the rest of the show, please. Um, <laughs> would, would you wear that to your next Teams meeting? I, I, I really want to know. No, no, and, but there are technologies, right? And and so when you think of the, uh, the business graph behind Teams and LinkedIn and the stuff that's in the behind some of these other technologies, right? There are use cases for collaboration. There's use cases for meetings and onboarding and recruiting. I'll send you the paper, but yeah. There, I mean, oh, oh, totally, totally. Look, look. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying there aren't use cases. I'm just saying that's the big leap. Yes. Like from gaming to Azure, no, that's a no-brainer, right? But from Azure to Office, like that's the leap. And and I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but I am going to say it's not going to happen next week or next month or or this year. And 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 part of it is that we have to respect that this is a cultural and generational shift in technology that's going to need to happen. I don't know if you were at conferences where people showed up in Google Glass and you're like, who the hell are you? Like you're you're a total goofball oh, or Robert Scoble, yeah. Robert Scoble in a shower, whatever it was, right? And and, and the point is, there's there's a cultural issue here, and that's what's different than the iPhone comment that was made earlier in this broadcast, where when the iPhone came along, part of it was it was instant sex appeal, right? Like like people carried it in their back pockets, and it was cool. Glasses aren't cool, and it, and it's an additional equipment. Now, will they begin to address some of these things with with minimizing the the fashion impact, or even make it sexy and cool? I think the next generation is going to have a lot to say about that which is why I think one of the reasons why I think the metaverse is going to unfold, unfold a little more gradually as far as like the mainstreaming of it. That's one of my sort of core beliefs there. Uh, but anyhow, I, uh, but I, I want to explain to you why I'm ultimately bullish 
on, on the metaverse. It's a little bit dystopian, but I've seen the future of humanity, and I'm not a futurist. But was it I the believe the Walmart metaverse demo where you can shop in the store. What was it? <laughs> the future of humanity is 5G couch potatoes. Okay. <laughs> and that's why the metaverse is ultimately going to triumph because basically we're scared of the outside world. Now, 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 Ray, this doesn't count for you, but but I think in your case, what you'll do is you'll create uh, you'll you'll advance your clone personas so you'll be able to manipulate you'll be, you'll be traveling over the world while manipulating personalities have a metaverse yeah but you're going to have a better one you're going to be the first to have a really good one you're going to be Wasn't the first there a cartoon to, about this john where you know you're going to be the first to attend you're going to be the first to attend a conference as a as an avatar and 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 so but but no i think i think we're looking with with social unrest with climate change uh with we make each other sick we're scared of the outside world we're overweight pleasure addicted couch potatoes paying crypto taxes to big tech to interact in virtual worlds and they offer a fantastical escape from the mundanity of our real lives and that's why the metaverse is going to succeed now um i realize that's a little dystopian <laughs> and, and probably not the most inspirational message for your listeners. But but one thing I do want to hit on, which I thought Peter said earlier, which I think is the counter to my dystopia, which is he talked about creativity. And to me, that's the key is yeah. can we take these tools and seize them for creation and interactivity on our own terms? And if we can, then I think that changes this whole conversation. Yeah, somebody said that none of the gamers will earn a penny with this Microsoft purchase of a gaming company and in the future with web3 tokenization of the internet and creators having skin in the game meaning you know if uh you know you could in the, in the future an acquisition like that gamers could benefit uh financially um okay so let me shift because we get this is fascinating and i love the couch potato and crypto tax by the way buy the dip this is the time to get into crypto uh <laughs> let's talk about Ooh, let's <laughs> let's talk about why you don't think b2b and b2c are the same, and, and you wrote an article, uh, no, yeah, comma, yeah. B2B and B2C, content strategy are not the same. Uh, you said B2B marketing is still about attention, but it must be the right kind of attention, and you compared it to how attention is earned on B2C, brand messaging, opt-in subscriptions, uh, and, and you talked about attention on social, having virality, cult of personality and celebrity like Ray, and a topic authority and expertise like Ray. But you said B2B buyers aren't swayed by viral marketing into impulse purchases. So talk about this, this, this distinction between B2B and B2C marketing and content. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, I, I was intentionally sort of ruffling feathers when I did this post um, and, and it's I'm not no. pulling it out. I, no. I'm, not, I'm not I'm not pulling it out of thin air because regularly on LinkedIn, I see people saying, oh, B2B and B2C, they're the same now. Quit talking about these terms are useless, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And uh, and and so I kind of intentionally hijacked that to get attention. I'll just admit that. But 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 it worked. Point, it's a great article. The, the point is not just B2B to B2C, though. I think there are some distinctions that can be made there. The point is more that we need to understand it's about the complexity of the purchase process fundamentally. So for example, there are some fairly complex B2C purchases that that look more like B2B in terms of how they're made. Like, like Jesus Hoyos, who didn't like my article, well, he took issue with it, pointed out to me later in a conversation that higher education, which he works in a lot, that's a that's almost a B2B type decision as far as the different personas who get involved in, sure. in, in the kid's educational decision, right? And, and so it's really about complexity of purchase and then working back from there, right? And so 
once you understand the complexity of a purchase, then you start thinking about this issue of trust that you guys were talking about earlier today, which is how do we impact the trust of these people who are going to be involved in this purchasing process? And, and my only point in that article is that a lot of this trust thing is not a viral marketing scheme. It's more about content. It's more about expertise. It's more about people inviting you into, into their lives in either through entertainment or in the case of B2B, relevance, education, things like that. Because the fact is that, um, that you, it's getting harder and harder to buy your way into people's lives. You have to earn your way into people's lives one way or the other. Uh, and, and so that's sort of the big lesson of the article, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, but there's a little piece, right, too, that, I mean, you think about B2B, right, that's it's now targeted to account-based strategies, right, and which are very, very different than the viral strategies, right? Inside, yes. There's maybe 2,000 companies, maybe 10,000 companies that you care about, and at most, maybe 10 people in each company that you're targeting. So that's 100,000 versus consumer markets, right? So you're definitely right. I mean, we're seeing a different kind of view um, in this. Um, and it's really about relationship and influence buying is actually even more important than, than before, even though there's a lot of things that are self-service. There are a lot of things that people can do on their own. There's a lot of things that they discover on their own, right? Sure. So And, and, and look, I mean, some B2B buying is becoming that, especially in small businesses, right? Like we, yeah. you'll throw stuff on a credit cards and make a decision in a small business setting pretty quickly. So it's not, it, I'm, I'm kind of admitting the distinction isn't totally like, like for keeps in all areas. I, I, I did a tweet that got some reaction where I said, you know, if you say that B2C and B2B is the same, uh, then, then your job then, if you say that, is to spend 10 hours a week on Instagram, including two hours liking and watching posts from top brand influencers. Then you have to spend two hours a week on Pinterest and two hours a week on TikTok. And, and then and then we're good. Um, but, 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 actually, but, but actually, what I did also to make this kind of fun, and we only have a few more minutes, so we're going to have to go through this quick, is what B2C and B2B can teach each other that you wouldn't expect, right? You have a board? Um, I do. And um, I, I got three for each, so I'm going to have to go fast because we don't have right. a lot of time. Um, but, um, but the one thing is I pick stuff that isn't obvious, right? Because obviously B2C has had an enormous experience on uh, impact on B2B in terms of things like software design and adoption. We all know that and understand it. So I tried to pick a few things uh, that, that were not maybe so obvious. So let's just run through these real quick because they shouldn't take long. Uh, B2C, what B2C can teach B2B, uh, the art of the virtual keynote, B2B virtual keynotes mostly stink unless you have an exec who's allowed to go off script. But but some of these B2C keynotes are pretty awesome. The Apple, Apple ones and video ones have gotten rave reviews from a lot of people. It turns out that cool demos rock and work really well virtually, but your fireside chat is bland and boring virtually. So that's something we can learn. Uh, B2C number two, addictive loyalty programs. B2C is really good at getting people into uh, a long-term brand relationship. I think about things like Starbucks, Amazon Prime, even Southwest. Uh, so those are those are things. Here's another one. Chatbots, better chatbots. Your chatbot doesn't have to suck. Amazon has a good bot. Domino's does. Best Buy does. Peloton's I've heard is good. I haven't tried it. B2B has the worst bots. Those bots you go on to B2B sites. Why are you here and you can't even type it in? It wants you to pick from a menu. It's so ridiculous. You can't get to a live person. So those are three things that, that, that B2B can learn from B2C. And now I've got the reverse real quick. B2B number three, privacy. Privacy still matters. Mm. Why is it that B2C companies are always so eager to exploit people's willingness to, to, to give up their privacy. B2B is so much better at data trust. So these are is, lessons B2B to B2C. 
B to B can teach B to C. Got it. Got it. Yeah. What, there are better ways of earning trust than compulsive lock-in, exploitive terms of service that I don't even read anyway because I know all my friends are there, but it might get me in the end when I show up in some Facebook ad that I'm dating someone that I'm not or whatever. Okay. Uh, <laughs> number two, adoption is the long game. Algorithms aren't always right. You think about everyone from Google to Netflix on the B2C side, they're always canceling the services you love because not enough people are using it. And, and, and ignoring the fact that niche audiences really care about these services and these audiences could be influential and lucrative if you pay attention to them. B2B is so much better than that, the B2C. Uh, you think about like the fall of Google Reader and how Google Reader alienated like a whole generation mm -hmm. of journalists who are consuming stuff via news feeds and stuff. So it's so, just so, one example. So, so B2B has a better understanding of the total lifetime value of a customer. Yes, and 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 who the VIP customers are and who the who the lucrative niche audiences right. are and how to market to them and not say, well, our algorithm tells us that it's only a small percentage of our total users, so we must cancel these services. Uh, and then number one, which we've already kind of discussed, is no more viral. Wait, let me just hold it up for a sec. No more viral BS. So B2C marketing is so much about like viral attention seeking tricks, you know, like Frank Thomas on my sports thing, buy you eugenics, you know, to increase your testosterone levels, blah, blah, blah. You know, you're insecure. You're not performing. Your woman's not going to like this. You've got to get this eugenics, whatever. You know, all this stuff is like so, so tone deaf and like it, it's so contrary to like earning a long-term trust relationship with a customer. And so I actually think that the B2B is a little better at, at playing that long game. Now, I, granted, I've using these terms and there's a lot, I realize there's so much blurring of the lines right now. So this is more like just for fun. You know, I realize there's a lot of exceptions to this, but anyway, that's my John, show wait, does, for you today. This, this wait, does great, anyone bring their A game to Disrupt TV more than Mr. Reed? I mean, talk about prepping for the show getting posters he's got advertising in the back with our social handles and stuff hey i don't want b2b b2b to be, to doesn't have to be boring right i mean we can no, have a no, good no. time our job is to make it exciting listen you need I your just own wish podcast you missed your calling you, you need your own pot you, you just want to know what's with the flamingo what's the story yeah, right. i was thinking that well <laughs> the flamingo's currently on mute <laughs> we are here with John awesome. Reed, co-founder at Diginomica. You can follow him on Twitter at John ERP. And if you want to figure out more about companies that have been killed by Google, you can go to killedbygoogle.com for an extensive list that's not created by John. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot Thanks, for being on the show. Come back, Pleasure, Come Thanks, back. guys. Come back anytime. Thank you, sir. Wow, Ray. <laughs> what a, what you know, I, I thought the best part of the show was this. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. John, stick around. We're going to talk to you in the green room. But I thought the best part of the that show was awesome. Was really, it came out of the like, screen. That, that was if you really didn't great. get a feeling of that, and you I've didn't never duck. been punched before during the show. All right, that was awesome. That was uh, that was episode two sixty four. Uh, let me tell you about next week, and then we'll have Ray wrap up uh, our, our the summary of our three guests. Uh, metaverse, social commerce, and B two B B two C, not the same. <laughs> Episode 265 next week, we have Karen Mangia, best-selling author, keynote speaker, vice president, customer and market insights at Salesforce. We have Katie Morrow, director, managed services and regional manager, North America and ANZ at ProductSoft. And we have Corey Glickman, head of sustainability at Infosys. That's next week. Ray, your closing remarks on this week's episode. 
Yeah, no, I mean, we're, we're at the beginning of the uh, metaverse economy. We've been writing about that. We found 43 use cases. They are in the B2B space. Um, there's definitely a lot of use cases in the B2C that we're going to see that will translate back to kind of what John's talking about. Uh, but, but I mean, we have an opportunity to build a brand new uh, web. And, and I think that's really the conversation point, whether it will be owned by a couple mega corporations or whether we'll be able to decentralize it and take it back. I think that's going to be the battle we're going to be watched going forward. Some of those things that we were talking about at CES from Robin um, are, are definitely happening today. And, and where social commerce hits is, is going to be one of those use cases that I think would be very important to look at where the metaverse is going to play. And then, of course, the live entertainment and sports piece. I mean, there's just infinite capabilities there. I mean, we're going to see so many opportunities. Not all these use cases are going to pan out, but we really encourage people to check out our uh, monetizing the metaverse report that's out. Uh, and of course, we'll be building out the use cases for some time. But I think every guest, you know, we're, we know we're onto something big. We're at the beginning of that next revolution. And I'm really excited to see where that takes us. I mean, we forecast about $21 trillion in market cap. Um, you know, let's put this in perspective. The entire uh, publicly traded stocks in tech lost $4 trillion in the last three trillion in market cap actually almost four trillion at the rate we're going right now and that was sitting close to about 22 trillion so this will be bigger than the entire market cap of all the tech companies that are out there today um, by 2030. that's it's a stunning report get your hands on it i like the architectural uh, the tech stack of of the metaverse economy starting with web3 at the bottom in the middle you got decentralized autonomous organization and DAOs, and then you have advanced interfaces at the very top and uh, so I, I, it's, a, it's a beautiful report, and I'm, and I'm doing my best to share as much of it as I can without giving the entire report to my audience because they love it. They're, they love every aspect of your report. So congrats on that. Everybody get, 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 get your hands on it. Okay, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you next Friday. Thanks, everyone. Hey, take care.